Hello, fellow podcasters. Welcome to the Safasa podcast, where we discuss various topics around neurodiversity and autism spectrum disorder with self-advocates, program directors, and occupational therapists, families, and clinicians. I hope you enjoy what we have in store for you today. We are joined today by our guest, Adam Kedney, a self-advocate here in our Edmonton community. Thank you for joining us, Adam. Thanks for having me. We didn't want to do all the talking, so Adam, we were hoping you could take a couple minutes to introduce yourself to our audience and tell us more about yourself. We'd also really appreciate it if you could um, share which terms you prefer, an individual with autism or autistic individual. Uh, Sure, thanks. I'll start with the last part uh, for identity language. I prefer in general autistic individual or anything that doesn't have with in it. And that's simply because the way people, especially people who aren't as familiar with autism will hear is if you say I'm a man with autism, they'll hear it like you're saying I'm a man with cancer or a man with a cold. And their first mental structuring of who I am is that I'm somebody with something to get rid of. And that leads to identities with folks who didn't know much about autism thinking, oh, when are you going to cure that? How are you getting rid of it? How long are you going to be sick? Which that's not the nature of autism. The nature of autism is more as an identity, like being black or being born into a religion. You are that because that's who you are. And everybody around you will react to you like that, regardless of whether you try and put it down or not. And because autism is not something to be put down, I prefer being an autistic man, an autistic adult, the same way someone might be a black adult or a Christian adult or any other positive identities that we have today in our world come beforehand. That's not to say that a person with autism isn't to never be used. There are times where I need to interact with the system under the sickness model, or sometimes I have to advocate for somebody who is so helpless that they have to only be treated by the sickness model, at least in terms of interacting with strangers. And those are times where, yeah, I'm, a, I'm okay with using the with model because that's what doctors are using and you're sending strong social signals that this person needs to be treated like they're sick which again comes full circle back to why I would rather be an autistic person because I don't want to be treated most of the time as if I'm less than or like I'm sick. I just want it to be an identity that we're aware will affect moments in that, you know, if some really intense stimulation comes around, I'm going to have to deal with it differently. And we can recognize that as autism. But at the same time, if, uh, the symbol of a cross drives by and I'm with a Christian, they're going to have a different reaction than someone who's not a Christian. It's an identity creating reality that I would rather be recognized in the, uh, like you say, in the identity section rather than the malady section. And then uh, to introduce myself, (laughs) I am a very complicated individual by normal standards. Usually we say where we work. I have like five jobs. I'm a researcher, a caregiver, an editor, uh, an advocate. I do lots of different things. 
um, we're taking care of autistic kids, autistic adults, researching in autism. Um, I'm sure I have other jobs I'm not thinking about right now. Last I counted, I had seven. But still underemployed in that most of the time I'm only working 20 to 30 hours a week. Um, I'm also a student. I'm in linguistics and sociology. And according to my linguistics profs, I've been a linguist since I was a kid, just because I care about how language changes everything, just like with the identity things. It's not that I care about it in terms of how I react. I care about it in terms of how it works in the world and how it moves other people and how it changes what I'm allowed to do in that context. Um, so yeah, I'm a student, I work, I take care of lots of people. Is there any other parts of my identity that uh, would be helpful? Oh, I'm autistic, I guess. I, I haven't mentioned that yet, not explicitly. No, that's great. Thank you for that introduction and for that very um, educational um, explanation between the identity first and the um, uh, person or um, identity first and the um, person first person first language. Yeah, that's uh, that's a perspective I hadn't heard before, and I really appreciated how you shared um, identity created reality. I think that's a a very accessible idea for everyone who's listening, um, and it just makes that terminology, I think, a lot more understandable. So thank you. And um, wow, you sound like a really busy guy. Seven jobs, a student. You're you're really good at balancing, it sounds like. <laughs> I find it easier to balance a lot of little things rather than a couple big ones. I wouldn't say I'm good at it. It's just this is, <laughs> this is much easier than having one eight-hour-a-day job where... I find that I just get burned out from the same stimulus. Even if I like the people and the place I work at, at some point, the same, the same, the same starts to just burn me out. For sure. That's so exciting that you're able to pursue your passions. Um, I just actually had a question. You mentioned you were engaged in research. Would that be research with linguistics? Uh, research with autism more so. Oh, okay. Interesting. Part of Jackie Ryan's lab. I'm a research assistant. She's working on how to develop self-determination and self-efficacy through uh, programs targeted at uh, autism two and autism one uh, persons. So higher needs persons and understanding how they uh, how they see the world in terms of self-determination. So, I mean, we can talk all we want about, we want them to do as much as they can, but if they don't think they're choosing what they do, that's not the life I think most people would want a person to have. So, um, yeah, the whole goal is to figure out how, how they understand their own ability to determine and choose their life and help that flourish through programming and through uh, uh, qualitative research. That sounds very interesting. And I'm curious to see how our discussion today about advocacy can overlap with that self-determination that um, you've been researching. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that introduction and that uh, brief explanation. We'll get into um, our questions, I think.
exciting. Yeah, so you mentioned, among many other things, that you are uh, a self-advocate, and that's actually what we wanted to talk about today. Um, we wanted to discuss advocacy within the autism spectrum disorder community. And for you, what does it mean to be an advocate? Um, I think my understanding, <clears throat> excuse me, my understanding of being an advocate is probably incomplete. I wasn't diagnosed till I was 30. And when I started the journey of being diagnosed, I kept looking for services. And it was disheartening to be mild about it because there just is a lack of adult services. Even if I know exactly what it is I'm failing in. So if I know I can't get a job because I can't talk, there's no services. And whenever I talk to services, I'm either too smart or too dumb. And being too smart is just as disheartening because I know what I need and they're measuring whether I can do math to say that I'm too smart to do social interaction classes where I could really use a class to be like, hey, here's how you talk to a boss or here's how you keep a job long term. Here's what you're missing. And uh, with all the services telling me no, I kept having to find ways to talk nice, to convince them that even though their service wasn't set up for me, that they could write down information, still get paid, and I could show up and they could maybe fudge some of the forms or we could look at my situation different to fit in their forms. And having had so many of these conversations and managed to get a few, uh, a few smaller services to bend the rules or fill in the paperwork creatively, I realized that that's the situation facing autistic folks. And it's not just me. I asked everybody, because that's one of my solutions, is to ask other people if what I'm going through is what they're going through. Or if there's just something simple I could change. Nope, nope. It's exactly what everyone else is finding. Um, when I was first diagnosed, there was a huge kick in Edmonton to try and get employment for autistic folks. And I showed up to three or four events of that. And the events all went the same disheartening way where there'd be 10 to 20 autistic folks, a curious business manager. I want to emphasize curious, not hiring. And, uh, We'd all have gone there believing that there's a few business people who understand enough about autism that they're offering jobs. And nope, it's just one business person curious who else will be there? What can I learn from them to employ autistic folks? Is this a market? I, you know, and because there was nobody there to tell them how to do it, nobody got hired, nothing came of it. A few of them were nice and they provided lunch. So it was. You know, but uh, with that, I just realized nobody's speaking up for autistic folks and the people who are speaking up for autistic folks, they aren't doing it helpfully. Um, I went through the job uh, coach system and the ones that are pan disability, and I went through three of them, I think. They want 
to treat autism as if it's having no legs, where they go in, they talk to the employer, they say, here, you're going to need these barriers, this ramp, this ramp, and then that guy is going to be just like every other employee. That's how they want to treat us, but that's not the nature of autism. I can fake like I'm just like everybody else for four months, no problem. And then at that four months, something happens, someone goes on vacation, they realize I'm a little different, and that starts a spiral out of control where different turns into bad and bad turns into fired. So they try and get me a job, and uh, I saw a bunch of my autistic peers, well, not a bunch, like four, in the six months I was there, get jobs, and every single one of them had the same problem. They could get the job, and then as soon as something changed from the hiring pattern they didn't have the job anymore and weren't supported so the advocacy part right from the get-go i had that autistic uh, reaction where i'm like you guys are doing it wrong i could do this better only i kept seeing people say well if you can do it better why aren't you doing it better and that's kind of what got me down advocacy and since then, I've kind of seen advocacy as those moments where somebody in power knows best, but they don't really know anything at all. And helping myself, helping others create positive experiences for us with, uh, with those by arguing with those in power or convincing those in power. And I guess... To me, that's the long explanation of how I understand advocacy is I kind of came from it from that angle. And then while arguing with them, someone's like, oh, you're a pretty good advocate. Oh, is that what I was doing? And I didn't really set out to be an advocate. I set out to not have a shitty life and to help the people around me who are going through the same thing. Because it's easier actually to speak on behalf of somebody else, change the policy and then come in and say me too, than to change it on behalf of yourself and benefit from there, which is weird yeah thank you for sharing that um like experience that you had i feel like it takes a lot to be the one to realize that there the services out there or the support is really lacking and then to be that person who like sort of catalyzes like a movement or begins like advocacy that's a lot of um it takes a lot of courage and yeah thanks for sharing that experience of how you started and I it's also, I, I don't think I've started a movement. I've just joined a bunch of other people who are doing similar things because mm -hmm. yeah, even just being a part of that is a huge thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, I thought it was also interesting when you were sharing that you mentioned how there's a lot of ideas and a lot of thought, but um, sometimes the action is lacking or the action is not quite appropriate to what the services should be or what would be most beneficial, like how you even mentioned, you're having to take math tests to just get some help with some social things. So yeah, that's and then, interesting. Like, yeah, well, it's more that they they use IQ for everything. And IQ is just the logic, uh, it's just a logical progression where this is like that. To me, that's, to me, that's what I mean by like the math kind of thing, where they use IQ, which is based on the, logic skill of comparing two items and seeing if they're the same or different and yeah if you have an iq over 80 you're disqualified immediately from <clears throat> getting cpp which is funding for persons who 
are sufficiently development lacking. And if you aren't qualified for CPP, most of the Edmonton services for socialization, for learning, basic learning things are closed. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I'm definitely learning a lot already about um, services and like the inner workings. Um, yeah, I think it's good to have you share your experience from someone who's gone through the system and who has been exposed to these sorts of services and can see that there's a need to do better for sure. Um, as we're talking about these different services, I know um, of one that's very prominent, the ASAN, which is the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. And they have a very clear mission, which is to advocate for the inclusion of autistic people in decisions that affect them. And that seems to be something that you're very passionate about, as you've mentioned through your experiences. Um, and they advocate for um, autistic people to be involved in legislation, in depiction in the media and disability services. Um, they use the statement, nothing about us without us. Um, and so with that uh, very heavy statement, my question would be, should there be neurotypical advocates um, who are not uh, considered within that us? So in order to answer your question, <clears throat> excuse me, I need to know a little more context about it. For sure. Uh, so you're, you're saying we're looking at the phrase, nothing about us without us. Yes. Yeah. That was the phrase that um, yep. has been stated by the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. And I think a lot of um, other communities who have been advocating for changes have used that statement. And I agree with that statement. So what context are we looking at for including uh, neurotypical voices? Yes. Yeah. Just in general, I would say in all sorts of uh, domains, such as uh, I initially mentioned legislation, how um, autism is depicted in the media and how disability services are organized and, um, and expressed or uh, given out. Um, in those domains, should we have neurotypical advocates? And if we do have neurotypical advocates, what does their role look like? Well, I guess maybe our understanding of the word advocate is different because I don't understand what a neurotypical advocate would be. Well, I guess what would a, yeah, what would a neurotypical advocate be? Because my understanding of an advocate is somebody who's speaking for a special interest. And by special interest, I mean an interest that is not the majority at the moment. So neurotypical being the majority, unless they're advocating on behalf of something. Oh, yes. Perhaps I wasn't, um, maybe I'm also not being clear. My understanding was that a neurotypical advocate for autism. So uh, for example, um, within our student group, we say that we are advocates for autism awareness and acceptance um, within our campus and um, promoting the Center for Autism Services. Okay. Um, so, so in the context of autism particularly? Yes, sorry. Yes, sorry. I think I'm missing a context because... But in, within with autism advocacy, I, it's necessary for there to be non-autistic advocates. Like if we just do the math, let's assume that autism eventually we get good enough at recognizing it and we catch everyone and it's got the same rate as left-handedness. That's like 15%-ish from what I remember. Of that 15%, there's three autism, autism one, two, and three. And autism three definitely isn't gonna advocate for themselves. 
that's the definition of autism three. So now if that was equal, we're down to 10% of the population. We can't have 10% of the population educate everyone. That's impossible. So there has to be advocates who are not autistic for autism to be advocated for adequately, I guess. Yeah, guess, for sure. And the other, maybe the other side in my understanding of what you're asking is advocacy, in my experience at least, because it's for that special or less popular or less uh, represented thing, it is about fitting into a context that is greater. And you can't fit into a context without any experts in that context. So we need neurotypical point of view that can talk to an autistic point of view to find the space that's available so that we can make it fit correctly for everybody involved. I mean, to go a little off topic, that, that ties really tightly into my understanding of what even is the definition of autism. It's, you know, a pattern of thinking that is markedly different enough that capitalism needed to name it. We don't have a name for people who chew predominantly on the left side of their mouth, but only predominantly at a 51 to 55% rate. I'm sure those people are out there and nobody cares because it doesn't change any of capitalism. It doesn't change any major experiences in our society. But we have a word for autism because we interrupt because we think markedly different and depending on how you believe things, we either become geniuses or interrupters and they need a name for those guys. So. Yeah, no, thank you for that answer. And I think what you're saying kind of reminds me of um, why we use the terms neurodiverse and neurotypical, right? Because the world that we live in is a neurotypical world, but um we can accept diversity in other atmospheres. Um, and so perhaps as neurotypical advocates, such as myself and Miriam here, um, we can collaborate and we can make sure that, as you said, there are those spaces for neurodiverse people who are thinking differently to engage and to have those spaces within this um, neurotypical world. Mm -hmm. And I like, I like to believe that it's the same as all tolerance where, you know, you see someone, you have a reaction because of the thing you see about them, whether it's how they talk or how they move or how, how big, small, or colored they are, right? For sure. If you can have that reaction and then hold positivity afterwards, that's the point. But um, Yeah, so I know like previously you sort of went into your experience of what led you to become an advocate and obviously it's just to reiterate as you mentioned um there the lack of like support and services is sort of what got you there but now we want to like we're wondering like what is the most difficult part about being an advocate and do you find that there are day-to-day -day obstacles you face that limit your ability to advocate for yourself and the autistic community Yes. Their biggest things that I have faced as an advocate is that people don't want to be wrong. And people tend to get really defensive, especially over complex topics, while they're having 
a conversation about it because they don't want to be wrong and they can't necessarily think the whole way through to see if your complex idea makes any sense or not. So more often than not, the defensive pattern that no longer works on me because of my identity now with taking care of other people is the three questions that very few people can say yes to all of, are you autistic? So could you understand my son, daughter, this person you're advocating for? Well, do you really know their point of view? You're no longer a seven-year-old. You're no longer a 20-year-old. You're no longer whatever category. Well, I take care of lots of people and there's lots of them in that category. And I do a pretty good job taking care of them. So yes, I, I do know what it's like around that kind of you know so but and uh sometimes they try and make that caregiver proof deeper somehow and or they make it about independence which again i have i live on my own and while i do have a supportive family they're not supportive in any consistent ways so uh yeah it, it's that proof of value i also run into i don't have credentials but i'm almost there i have like i'm in my fourth year it'll take me like three years or more to finish but i'm in my fourth year for sure so you're mentioning that the most difficult parts of being in advocate are often just having your voice be heard and your perspective be fully understood. Would that be right? Uh, kind of. So, and I don't, I'm worried about offending, but I can show you a little more clearly. Uh, one of the things you just did is insidiously really difficult to work with, where you put my words in your boxes, which is necessary. Like you can't not do that. This is why I don't want you to be offended because you just can't not do that. You have to understand what I say. And to do that, you have to make your own boxes and you have to be comfortable with how they fit within your understanding of reality. And then you have to find how I'm doing things and put them in there. And I guess what I'm trying to say is it's, it's that choice to do things without thinking about doing them. That wasn't your choice. It's the design of how we as a society are supposed to think. And it's that supposed to, that's in your head and in so many other people's heads where you do this thing and you have to understand me and you have to trust me. And to do that, all of your boxes have to be checked yes. And I exist to the value you want in the box, but you're not asking about the value, you're asking about the indicator of the value. And I don't have the indicator, I have the value. So, yeah, and it's just that, that reordering of my words where I care about this very particular way of understanding how people will move. And it's something that a lot of autistic folks I talk to want to talk about it like. But the common narrative, the way neurotypical conversation happens, it avoids that and puts it in this other set of boxes that were obvious to you guys. like. <laughs> You were just asking and I didn't see a look of what uh, I saw. Yeah, like this is a question that's going to happen. And uh, so it seems like it would be normal to both. Of you. 
where to me it was, no, no, not quite. I care about how I put a meme out there, unit of information, and then you hear it, nothing wrong so far, but then after you hear it, you have to unpack it and understand it. And that involves reordering it. And we don't talk about that step. And talking about that step, as you can see, is to me where the difference lies and where the bridge needs to be built. And nobody knows about that step. And nobody wants to bother going through the philosophy of does that exist? Okay, it does. Would that be practical? Okay, it would. And then have the conversation with me if we're in the middle of an argument. And yeah, to me, that's the biggest part of advocacy is that the latent, I don't think like yous that some people are unwilling to even admit exist because to them, that means they'd be wrong. That there's a difference between us on this fundamental level they've never even thought of means they're somehow wrong or I'm trying to trick them. And that's the hardest part of being an advocate because no, it exists and I'm not trying to hold it against, but yes, I will have power if you listen to me. I'll have power over showing you what I care about. That's the thing that I want to get to, but they see it as different power. So. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I think that definitely made me understand it a lot better. And I think, um, as you mentioned, it's, that was, yeah, a very philosophical kind of look at um, how the communication can kind of be different. And um, I definitely learned, and I'm glad I could be a little example for you there. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, thank you. I think that's something moving forward I'm going to take and kind of think about a little bit more is that am I putting um, my perception or my interpretation of someone else's thoughts or ideas um, into how I'm perceiving it or thinking about it? Well, yeah, and you're going to. Like, you, like I say, you can't escape it. This mm -hmm. is necessary to survive. Otherwise, you know, you look at a bush and you'd have to do the science every time. Will this bear fruit that I can eat? Or you can look at the leaves and know, no, last year those leaves were associated with berries I shouldn't eat and move on, not waste your energy. That's, you know, the pattern recognition we do. It's just now we're on a philosophical level and we can't agree that our berry bushes are any shape because they're not berry bushes, they're philosophies. And, Yeah, thank you. Um, so you've kind of mentioned this, um, I guess, as you've been discussing, but we wanted to um, ask you about um, what, in your opinion, would be the most rewarding part of an advocate. Um, and we have a quote here from Dr. Temple Grandin, who I'm sure you know of. She's a Colorado State University professor um, of animal scientist. She's a renowned animal behavioralist, and she's also an autism advocate. And she stated that if she could snap her fingers and be non-autistic, she would not want that because autism is a part of who she is. Um, so again, um, in your opinion, what do you think is the most rewarding part of being an advocate and being able to kind of share, uh, just as you did right now, and educate about, um, about how um, others can kind of engage and interact with the ASD community? I think that for me, the most rewarding part is making the world correct. And especially since other people have built a foundation in our society before me that tolerance is what we want. 
And we want to be at a place of understanding each other so that in understanding each other, the tolerance plus understanding, we can learn new things. If uh, the estimations of history are correct, Albert Einstein might have been autistic. Understanding how to encourage more people to have social care that gets them the freedom to study as much as he did might get us another Albert Einstein faster kind of thing. Like that would be awesome for everybody. Um, but to me, that ideal, this ideal of getting to know everybody, support everybody, have a society that's about people rather than about the goals people have uh, is one that I like to believe in. And I tend to be able to surround myself near people who at least on paper, they wrote down that they want to believe in that. And then I can hold them to that and make the situation more correct, make it easier for them to achieve that goal. Just by sharing understanding and making uh, education about how to build those bridges more available. And to me, that's, that's the fun part of being an advocate is helping people learn how to build the bridges they're trying to build. So I don't actually have to do the hard work of building the bridge and just showing them where the materials are and what they're probably going to look like when they get to the other side of that bridge. Yeah, to me, watching people do their own thing better is, is the most rewarding part, seeing that I could have an effect that improved the world in a way that I and other people agree on. And in relation to what you just said, do you think tolerance is what the goal of advocacy is or is um, autism acceptance? Or think, do you think there is, sorry, do you oh, think I, there I, is a divide between the two? I think that thriving is the goal and those are ingredients on the way. They, I, they're different, they overlap. They're very complex, but I think thriving is at least my goal and the goal that uh, I am striving for when I advocate because acceptance is part of it. They have to fit and opportunity is part of it. It has to be more than fitting because if they just fit until no opportunities happen, they don't get to change. They don't get to be a full person. And then having opportunities and you know, <clears throat> structure to support those opportunities so they're meaningful. Yeah, I really like that. I've never actually heard the thriving part, but that's very, like, I like that you brought that up. I think sometimes we get too, like, focused in on, like, just, um, like you said, trying to make people fit in, but is the world even gone to a place yet where it's um like anyone can thrive in it so yeah mm -hmm. and and i call it the doctor trap where you start down the pathway where you see your person and you're like oh a person your life could be better i'm gonna go do some research and you do your research and you realize oh the issue that was causing them a problem this time was and you treat it like a symptom when more often than not, I'm finding in advocacy, it's not a symptom 
so much as a part of a network of experiences. And sometimes the network of experiences can be healed from an entirely different, somewhat unexpected angle. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Adam. Um, I think, <laughs> um, uh, so the last thing we wanted to ask you as we end off our discussion here today um, is what is one action that listeners, both neurotypical and neurodiverse, um, can engage in after our discussion? Is there a way that we can effectively partner or collaborate or as you said, build those bridges um, to correct the world and to um, really move forward in this advocacy? Uh, I think one thing that helps everybody more often than not is recognizing that you can be wrong and also still be doing the best thing and that has to be okay because a lot of people talk about good enough is good enough because at some point when you're taking care of somebody and you don't understand all of what they need uh, other caregivers have explained it to me that good enough is good enough where you have to give up and say this works it's not perfect but it works and approaching adult conversations that way where you're trying to say hey is this a good enough on your side right if somehow while talking we didn't have the amount of tolerance we do if we accepted that i'm going to grumble at you and maybe you're going to grumble at me uh we could still have this conversation it would have a darker tone and fewer people maybe would want to listen to the whole thing but we could still do it if we accept it, if we accept it for the flawed uh, vessel it is and keep moving. But in that we would, or at least I would have to accept that you're suffering to do this, but we're still doing it. And that's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable to recognize and try and care for while accepting that it's not perfect. But a lot of autistic conversations get so caught up in a detail that's like that, trivial. But not trivial because somebody is looking at it as if it's the indicator to move forward, the gatekeeper of the whole conversation. And a lot of the time there's a way to bend your thinking so it's not. Because, you know, if we can't agree and have nice tones, can really have a conversation <clears throat> is something someone might say. And yeah, you can. It just doesn't sound good. So. Well, I'm also glad that we weren't grumbling throughout our discussion yeah. today. Yeah. It um, would make it more difficult. That's that's the point. But it would there's a lot of especially autistic caregiver moments that you have to grumble through. Like you have to get through the moment and you can't fix it from inside the moment. So you get through, you think of it after, and I think, you know, at least that's the caregiver moments that I would give a number one tip for is, and it works with a lot 
of situations with a lot of people. I think that's a great piece of advice for us to take from our discussion today and from all of the experiences that you've been able to share with us. Um, yeah, thank you so much for giving us your time and your insight today. It was, as Miriam and I have both said multiple times, incredibly interesting. Um, and so we really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Adam. And thank you for having me on your podcast. I really like sharing this information. I hope that it uh, starts people thinking or conversations about how we can look at our own lenses, especially.